Thank you for joining us on this episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett, where we examine current and emerging technologies through the lens of diversity and equality. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Eminent Teachnology. Uh, today is a very, very, very special day because we have our first guest ever in the entire lifespan of this podcast. <laughs> uh, her name is Michelle Oko, and we are going to talk today about uh, the technical lane of environmental justice. Uh, when uh, Rochelle, when you brought this uh, topic up, I was like, sounds good. I have no idea what it means. <laughs> uh, and then uh, listening to a little bit about it this morning, I was like, oh, okay. Like environmental justice has, I didn't really understand what it had to do with, uh, with race or diversity or inclusion or anything like that. And I'm sure we'll get to more on that shortly, but uh, that is a, a very interesting uh and invisible to me connection before before today. Uh, so Michelle, do you want to say a little bit about uh, about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Michelle Oko, and um, I am a senior lecturing fellow of law um, with the Duke Environmental Law and Policy Clinic. Um, I'm also currently um, working towards my master's of public health um, from GW. And, you know, part of that is in relation to my perspective on environmental justice. As I see environmental justice, it is inextricably linked to health. So that was a very important component for me. And what would you, like, how would you define environmental justice? That's something that I did not know <laughs> before today and probably still don't totally know. Yes, well, um, environmental justice is very much centered on, you know, human beings and how um, the environment impacts them. And the justice component comes in when we really look at the issue of equity. So does, is, does everyone have the same access to environmental amenities? Um, and then when we also look at burdens, are certain populations more burdened by other populations to environmental hazards? So at the center of environmental justice, that's what we're really concerned about. Now there are some components of it that are relevant, right? So there are procedural aspects when we're looking at about access, whether or not the process itself is fair and equitable. You know, there's also the kind of the tail end of it, right? Looking at correctional justice. And, you know, when we're looking at polluters, are they being um, penalized, you know, fairly um, under environmental statutes, right? So those are all connected under environmental justice. That's, that's very cool and very, uh, very complex. <laughs> what, uh, what got you into, uh, like, what got you interested in this part of, uh, of the law? Yes, well, for a very long time, I've been interested in environmental law. So um, I was very um, blessed when I was an undergrad. Um, I had a great mentor. Um, and, you know, she connected me towards environmental policy. And, 
you know, and also was able to then connect me to, you know, principles of environmental justice. Although I didn't know that's what I was interested in at the time. I knew that I was interested in how, you know, these communities were being disproportionately impacted by environmental hazards. I knew that's what I cared about, but I didn't really have the term to connect to that. So then I went, when I went to law school and this was back, um, I was in law school from 2006 to 2009. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that time, environmentalism really did not um, take into account environmental justice. Yeah. It was kind of this kind of fringe, you know, interest area that was left to community organizations. But the big green organizations at that time were not really doing that type of work. So, um, so I was interested in environmental justice, didn't have the correct term, you know, for it, you know, trying to work with these organizations on issues that I was interested in, you know, at the same time, they were going towards the traditional environmentalism, which isn't real, you know, isn't really that concerned with disproportionate burdens, and yeah. sees the environment as, you know, a you know, common good available to everyone. It's not really looking at, you know, um, issues of disparate impacts, right? Um, yeah. So that, you know, that kind of was what kind of catalyzed, you know, my interest and in really being interested also in how the, you know, health was being impacted within these, you know, communities. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's kind of, you know, where, you know, educationally I was, I guess it kind of even started further back because my experience with the environment was kind of a lot, very, you know, was different from a lot of environmentalists. So my, you know, my connection, you know, I lived in an area where it was a lot of built environment, right? Cause I, I lived in kind of a city. Um, and then I was in a situation where, you know, down the road was a throughway, you know, across the street was a water treatment plant, you know, down the road was a brickyard, and then, oh, there's a landfill, right? <laughs> About two blocks away. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, as, you know, as a child growing up, I didn't really know, but something didn't seem right about yeah. having all those issues so closely connected to me. So, you know, pursuing that further, you know, going through law school, not really seeing where I kind of fit in with the environmental community. Um, and then after graduation, going more towards a social justice route through my, you know, practice. Mm -hmm. Still, I kind of came back to those environmental justice issues, especially when I had my own practice where, you know, I handled disability law. And, you know, looking at cases and looking to see, you know, at, you know, I was coming in late at the, you know, at the and the process, but really kind of looking back and, and, and seeing, you know, the environmental impact on these people's health yeah. and seeing how that wasn't being paid attention to. And then at that point, I really wanted to be, be involved earlier in the process so that I could be in a role where I was more protective of health, you know, for these communities. Yeah. That's great. How, I mean, it's awful that it happens, but great that there's uh, an advocate like you. Thank you. Out there for that. How does, so like usually when I think of, you know, things that are bad for the environment, I always, you know, it immediately comes to like, oh, we need to save trees. We got to have like oxygen, but things like living close to a landfill and, you know, like being in cities that have all this pollution and everything, like, what does that look like for the people that are being affected by it? Right. Like how does, it's hard for me to visualize like, well, we need to save more trees. Like how does that save lives? 
as as opposed to things like I think what you're talking about where it's like you're living in a land that's being like constantly polluted and because you're being disenfranchised all sorts of ways uh having a rough environment adds to it like where does that what does that do to people yes um well it's for one thing it's very it's very demoralizing yeah um you know there there you know you brought up kind of the issue of saving trees well you know having access to a clean and healthy environment you know is is also really um important as far as you know as far as your ability to progress and thrive. So there, you know, there's certain aspects. So for communities, it's hard to grow and develop if you have a lot of these environmental hazards, right? So um, it's, it's difficult to attract, you know, economic opportunities that aren't also dirty. Um, you know, we have a lot of, you know, what we call hot spots, in which are these kind of areas where it's a concentration of, you know, these pollutants and, you know, these and these communities are forced to have to live there. So yeah. it hurts the land value, it hurts economic opportunity. Um, so it's, you know, very, you know, problematic in that area. Um, but then there's also the lack of the positive too, right? So if you're in an area where you don't have access to, um, to walkways, where you don't have access to um, an area with trees, right? Because also yeah. if you have trees, right, that helps to clean your air. Yeah. Um, you know, that helps with air quality, right? So um, if you don't have access to these things that also, you know, will negatively impact you. So there's the, you know, negative of the pollution itself. And then there's a lack of, uh, you know, environmental amenities that also will have a negative um, impact. So I guess part of the issue is you could actually see, and we do see um, communities dying, right? Especially if there's something like a landfill um, that is present. That's, so, that's, Michelle, let me ask you this question. So, I mean, a lot of times when we think about the word justice, it's almost always tied to something to do with law or legal issues uh, in general. Um, but in terms of environmental justice, uh, a lot of that's directly related to economic stability and economic profitabilities in areas. I mean, so we see a lot of areas where we have regentrification, we have cities struggling with clean water. We have all of these issues that are going on in these countries where a lot of these problems were, would be solved or not even existed if they had an economic platform in which to address these issues. And a good example of that is Flint, right? So we, we, we see all these families, specifically in low-income neighborhoods, where the water has been corroded to the point where it's not safe for people to drink. And then there are the other areas where factories that make some of the very tools that we love pollute the water, and then they're cancer-causing uh, things in, in, in their environment that are beyond the control of the people who live in those neighborhoods. And I'm assuming if they could, they would move, but they live where they can. So how does the justice piece of that tie directly to the economic health or welfare of a community? Yes. Um... You know, our history of racism and systemic racism does play a role. Um, You brought up the situation with, you know, Flint, Michigan. Um, There are places in 
North Carolina who are dependent on well water, you know, where, you know, the water quality, you know, as far as lead contamination rivals those, you know, of Flint, Michigan. Um, and then if you look at issues like that, as far as why these communities do not have access to public water systems, it's tied to, um, you know, how jurisdictions were drawn, extraterritorial jurisdictions, right? You, you know, if you were to look at a map, you could actually see areas where it's just like, okay, within a jurisdiction, there's like, carved out this like little donut right and it's just it's this community is left out and and part of the reason why it was left out was because it was a community that was majority black um so you know when you look at the these issues of access it's not just you know it's not just a matter of um it's kind of separate like it's not just an accident you know um a lot of these were you know, occurred based on policy decisions. Um, and then we're still suffering with, with those today. So even when it comes down to where a locally undesirable land use will be located, right? Their, you know, their race is a bigger indicator than income, you know? So very much so it's tied into kind of, you know, these justice issues and, you know, definitely um, economics are a you know, are a part of it, but race, you know, you know, in that example of the locally undesirable land uses is even, you know, greater of an indication. But, you know, I, I think though, you know, I, I, and I don't want to harp on this too much, but I do think that you cannot really separate race and economics from each other. They're almost intricately tied together, right? So if you think about federal government laws that allowed redlining, discrimination in fair housing, discrimination in education. And you could just go down the line, you could pick any topic you want. And there was a federal government mandate or law that allowed this thing to happen. And so when you have what, what people call ghettos, ghettos became that because you know they were designed to be that for people who were marginalized economically, you know? And so, you know, when we could move, when we finally could move to the suburbs, white people moved out of the suburbs and then so you kind of have this back and forth but it's almost always linked to the economic powers of those that are in that space take hurricane katrina mm -hmm. you know i just chatted with a lady today i mean it just literally broke my heart you know talking about you know you know they hear that this this big storm is coming they've got to get out you know they don't have enough money to get out they don't know where to go you know all these families that are stuck there but then the question has to be, why would you build a water uh, reservoir around a community of people of color without mm -hmm. income, without the ability to get out? So the lady who I chatted with, she and her family were able to get out and go. But, but you know, there were lots of families who died because they could not. And so where is the support for the economics of, of environmental and I wouldn't even say justice, environmental laws and regulations. Mm -hmm. That um, so that economic piece there definitely needs to be more investment in you know environmental justice communities. You know that's definitely kind of a big piece. And you're and race and um, race and income. You know there is you know interplay there because part of the consequences you know of these decisions that we made. You know we do see economically. Um, so that's definitely, you know, a significant part 
Um, you know, the other piece that's more disturbing is that, you know, independent of the economic piece, we're still seeing <laughs> these disparities. Um, but definitely, um, as far as the economics, um, you know, that factors in. We, you know, we see that right now, you know, with with COVID. So there, there are, you know, exposures, you know, that, you know, due to kind of the economic drivers, right? You have, um, you know, by, you know, individuals from BIPOC communities being more likely to be in these positions of being frontline workers where they're more mm -hmm. likely to be exposed to COVID. So um, these economic drivers do definitely, you know, play a role. So there does need to be more economic investment in these communities. Um, and, you know, part of that, um, we, part of environmental justice, you know, in, is that it's supposed to be community driven. So an important aspect of environmental justice is that the movement, the momentum, the leadership needs to come from the communities that are impacted. So um, essentially the role, you know, of individuals like me is not to just speak for the communities, but in a sense to work alongside communities um, so that their voice, which is already present, right, can, you know, just essentially just have a, like a platform. So, so that's kind of an important, that empowering, empowerment piece. And actually, I prefer to say, you know, recognizing agency, right? Because their power isn't coming from the outside. They already have power. So, um, you know, that recognition of agency is very important. And the, giving those communities a role in deciding what are their economic needs is also important. So um, on the other hand, you know, kind of going to those economic drivers, the, you're, you're right in identifying that we're not really paying a lot of attention to the economic needs of these, you know, communities. Um, and then even connecting that to, you know, environmentalism, right? That was also kind of an, you know, an issue. And, you know, part of why some of these communities may be hesitant to work with environmental organizations because of the history where the environmental organization may have been in a position where they were working against, right, economic development for the community. So it's not enough to take actions that are protective of the environment, but you also have to take an account how communities are being affected by those decisions. You can protect the environment but also protect community interests. You can create jobs that are clean, but you have to make that a priority as opposed to just being like, we're going to get rid of this opportunity. How are you going to replace it is very important. That's uh, the whole Flint thing is like, it's so scary. Um, I was reading recently that like, was it the mayor of Flint finally got uh, charged and he got charged with like misdemeanors or something it was something that was just like a throwaway thing and like he was literally poisoning you know the entire city and not just the people there but you know their children and their grandchildren are also going to suffer these consequences and it's not an easy way to just say oh we'll just clean all the water and you know everything's back to normal it's just this multi-generational thing that uh very hard to fix not to be like yeah. a downer <laughs> no no well, that 
um, that corrective justice piece is very challenging. You know, um, it's challenging with environmental justice. It's also challenging with you know environmental statutes. You know, period. You know, both at the state and federal level. Yeah. Um, whenever it comes down to criminal prosecution, you know, they're very underutilized. You know, as a tool. You know, to protect communities. Yeah. If they're coming, go ahead, Rochelle. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, I was just, I'm going to change subjects. If you have something else you want to mention, no. do. <laughs> so one of the pieces that's important for you and I, because a lot of this podcast is really about the connections of technology and other areas. And so one of the things that is, has been in development for a while now, and then you can take things like traffic grids and red light and energy grids that have been controlled by technology, and now we're moving more toward these smart cities, right? So where literally the city runs through automation and artificial intelligence and human beings really just participate, insert themselves when they need to. But in terms of what that means, and I'll go back to my old harping point, is the economic impact of it, smart cities, right? So if you took a neighborhood that is an old neighborhood in regards to its ethnicity, and they had used the utilities and resources of their city the way they had. They, they got their bill in the mail for their water, their you know, gas, whatever it is. You know, they, they uh, had uh, you know, sewer line regulations. They had cut their grass a certain way, all these things that the city kind of you know, mandated. But when you come to these smart cities where less of that will be human intervention and more in technology interventions, how do you see smart cities impacting uh, uh, ethnicities and poor communities? Yeah, um, I think issues of equity have to be taken into account overall. Um, you know, part of you know one issue when we look at you know it, um, electricity usage and electricity costs, right? That's you know not enough as far as an issue of equity because, for example. You, you brought up economics, right? If I am, you know, a, an individual with less income, right? I'm probably gonna have issues as far as insulating my home, right? So even though the rate may be lower, right? Um, if my home is insulated, my actually my, I need more <laughs> electricity to do the same amount. So if you're not paying attention to that, right? Um, that's not really going to, you know, be very helpful to my to issues. Also from an economic situation, right? If I can only afford a space heater, right, which is going to be more demanding as far as electricity is concerned, that's not really going to solve the issue. So really kind of having to look um, at communities holistically is going to be an important, you know, aspect of really kind of moving forward as far as, you know, justice in this area. Yeah. I think that one of the interesting things about smart cities and automation and artificial intelligence and all these things is how much bias exists in it. There is a book written by a, a woman, her name is Virginia, her last name is escaping me right now, but it's called Automating Inequality. And it's talking specifically about the welfare system, system in Ohio. And it's just amazing to see how these little pieces of technology come in and just really upside a community or downside a community. So these people who were on the welfare system and were using the system, and I mean, in this instance, it's not black and brown, but it's just 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 
just people in general who were on receiving welfare, you know, when they went in and automated the system, it kicked all the people off welfare. And then to get back into the system, they had to go reinitiate again all the things they had done before. They had to go back and prove themselves, you know, worthy of this. And then what what happened? The system would keep kicking them out because they kept finding these variables that didn't match what it says. So if they lived in zip code that's a hundred thousand dollars a zip code versus a $10,000 zip code, it would kick them off the system, not knowing that that person who lives in that $100,000 zip code had, you know, the houses and the, the prices increased around them, not that they moved into that neighborhood. So I think there's a lot to be, you know, discussed when we, we get to this point about smart cities and automation and bias. And the bias is not always intentional bias, it's just bias just by the nature of what it is. And then the criminology of smart cities, right? So now you've got cameras all over, you know, we're no longer, uh, we're being really being watched by Big Brother, you know? So, you know, he sees everything that we do. And so now um, the question is, are you uh, more apt to be harassed or have some criminal interaction, you know, if you do not uh, think through, you know, what these smart cities look like and bring some sub level of humanity into these as opposed to just let the automation run itself. Right. Well, and I think that's a good point as far as the bias, because if you are not overt and consciously think about issues of equity, the default is to perpetuate disparities. So, um, so that is definitely um, a concern and that exists, you know, with all, you know, levels of technology. Um, You, you can't expect technology to root out bias because, you know, if, if you essentially, if you try to apply, you know, equal rules in an unequal society, you will just perpetuate the same disparities, you know, and that's kind of the danger that exists with technology. It doesn't solve the problem. You have to consciously, you know, think about it. Yeah. I think that they are trying to root out bias in technology. The problem just is is the speed at which technology is moving is faster than the bias that's already embedded in it, right? So, you know, you've got little pieces of code that says something about your zip code or says something about your insurance. Have you ever been arrested? What was your high school record? Did you graduate from college? You know, all those little pieces that are ingrained in the system that are not intentionally biased, but they're there because the system is looking for this set of facts, or if you will, this set of rules that say do the if A, then B, if B, then mm-hmm. C. And that's not always the case because sometimes if it's A, it might always end up over to F or somewhere else. It's not always going to be linear. Mm-hmm. I think that what technology typically does is it's linear. It's very logical and rational and it follows, mm-hmm. you know, these sets of facts. The problem is, is you have to really be intentional to remove that bias or to be aware that that bias exists and compensate for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, the uh, the biases are always something that's so hard. It's like people just don't understand that they're doing it, including technologists when they're, you know, creating these algorithms and things. It's just yeah. baked in, unfortunately. The bias is the default. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess what I would sort of like to see come out of all of the environmental justice things and um, really be a part of is how do we hook up communities with the both the technology and people like you, Michelle, like how, if there's a community out there that's, uh, that's suffering, like what's the best way for them to move forward? Yes. Um, 
Well, definitely there is power in collective action. There's power in direct action. Um, and all across the countries, you know, at different law schools, there are environmental law clinics. So, you know, they can, you know, contact their nearest environmental law clinic. Um, you know, also are the big green organizations now, um, for the most part, include environmental justice, you know, as part of the work they're doing. So while, you know, in previous years, they may have not thought of Earth Justice, you know, Southern Environmental Law Center as allies, those organizations, you know, which are, you know, legal organizations are now doing work in environmental justice. So um, it is worthwhile for them to reach out to those organizations. Those organizations are interested in connecting with communities. So um, it would definitely be um, a great opportunity, you know, there. Um, so, you know, definitely, you know, that's kind of part of where I would encourage them from, you know, a from a technology standpoint, um, there's so much technology that can be used, you know, for environmental justice. So, you know, um, in Louisiana for measuring, you know, air quality, there are, you know, the bucket brigades, right, who, you know, took it upon themselves to um, find out what their air quality was in their community. Um, now, you know, there are cheap apps, right? Um, in relation to, you know, so many environmental justice issues, right? Where you, for products, there's like Detox Me, um, there, you know, there, you know, and that's just one. Um, there, are, you know, are more that kind of does this type of work where you don't have to, you know, have a lot of money to collect, you know, information to be able to share information. So, you know, that's one of the ways that they could really plug into, you know, communities could really plug into, you know, um, technology and make it work for them. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us today. It's very good to see you and you look like you're doing well and I hope things thank are you. going well. I will do what I told you I would do earlier, but thank you so much. All right, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Eminent Technology. If you like the show, please review, subscribe, and recommend us to your friends and family. We'd love to hear feedback from you as well. You can email us at eminentteachnology at gmail.com. See y'all soon.